0: Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. The correcting hand or voice of God. You know, we've been talking about uh, renewal here in our study of Nehemiah because that's what God was doing. God was renewing the people of Israel. He was taking them from uh, shambles into vitality and life. He was taking them from decay into flourishing. He was taking them from uh, being negligent concerning the worship of God into being fired up and passionate for the things of God. He was taking them from prayerlessness and a lack of sacrifice for God, and he was bringing them into praise and worship and sacrifice unto the Lord. Uh, But here today in Nehemiah chapter 5, a vital and important development unfolds for the people of Israel. They, like us, so often got off track. There was sin in the camp. There was an issue that needed to be dealt with. And this issue jeopardized the entire work of God. You see, God was not concerned with rebuilding a city just to have a people in it who were in disrepair. God was not concerned with having walls that were refreshed and renewed and gates that were fully functioning if the people inside of those gates and inside of those walls were living in disrepair, were terrible people, so to speak. And so God was faithful to correct this generation about an issue that arose in some of their lives. And I want to talk to you today about this correcting work of God, because this is a major part of God's renewal in our lives, not just initially or at a singular moment, but all throughout our lives. We're a people prone to wander, and so we need the voice of our Father, honestly, gently, lovingly directing and declaring and saying, hey, you're off here. I want you to come back into an obedience To me. And what I want to try to encourage you in today is to see the correcting ministry or voice or disciplinary hand of God as an evidence of His goodness and love in your life. In Hebrews, it says this Do not lose heart when God rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastens everyone. He accepts as his son or accepts as his child. In a sense, when God is pointing something out in your life, when he's saying, hey, look, this is something that we are going to work on together, in a sense, it's an evidence of his love for you. It's an evidence of his passion for you, his desire for you. He's not willing to leave you alone, but he wants to minister to and change your life. Now last week we were in Nehemiah chapter four where we saw how pressure from outside of the congregation endangered the work of God inside the congregation. We saw how the people that were out there, remember Sanballat and Tobiah and the enemies who threatened guerrilla warfare against the Israelites and their rebuilding efforts. We thought about how the people out there were endangering the work of God. And I think a lot of times we like that message. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it's like every athlete on earth has a fictitious hater that is out there saying it could never be done. They said we could, like who said that? I don't know who said that, but it's like an internal motivation that we all like to have. And so for us, thinking about Nehemiah 4, oh yeah, the opposition outside. All the people that are trying to get us and stop us and slow down the church and all of that, but what I've discovered, at least in my Christian life, is that although I've experienced opposition from the outside, it's what's happening on the inside that so often slows the work of God. There might be pressure on the outside of God's kingdom, but often it's what's happening inside the church that will slow the work of God. And I'm amazed at the way that God disciplines. He's a good father and he knows exactly what I need. God has shown me things in my own life that, I mean, he's just been faithful to Snap me back whenever I am beginning to walk in a way that is contrary to his word. He's so faithful. He knows what we need. And my prayer is that I would receive, that you would receive, that we would receive God's confrontation and discipline the way that Nehemiah's generation did, because they received it. And I hope to show you that this corrective work is something that should be cherished and even pursued in the Christian life. So today I want to think about the way that God confronted them first. And then secondly, I want to think about how they responded to the confrontation. What were the things that they began to believe that helped them respond so well to Nehemiah's confrontation? And number three, I want to think about the environment that God's confrontation is meant for to produce? What does God want to have happen in our midst? Okay, but before really thinking about those three things, we should think about the problem that Nehemiah unearthed or the problem that God saw in this passage. It was a different time, a different era with different rules and laws and all of that than we have in our modern era. So what was the issue in their time? Well, there were four of them to just kind of simplify it for us today. The first one is found in verse 2 and 3. There was a grain shortage, it says that had been brought about by a famine in the land. All right, they didn't have modern technology that we have, and so their farming was very dependent on the weather. And so if it rained, then they would get grain. So if there was a drought, then there would be a famine, and they were beginning to experience that famine. It had not rained for some time. But that problem was compounded by people making a decision to as a way to try to get money to buy the grain that did exist since they couldn't grow it they decided to mortgage their properties and so they mortgaged their fields and their vineyards and their houses it says in verse 3 but then the problem got even more severe because there was a tax that king artaxerxes had placed on the land and a lot of people They didn't even have money to pay that tax, and so they began borrowing at high interest rates money from those who were wealthy in order to afford the tax that they needed to pay. And then things got the worst when many in Israel at that time took their last and final resource. They'd mortgaged their land, they'd borrowed money, they couldn't do those things anymore, and so some of them took their final resource, their own children, and they put them into indentured servitude for a period of time in order to pay off their debts, to make ends meet. This was a grave situation. Nehemiah thought of it as catastrophic. But the worst part of these four elements is that it was other Israelites who were taking advantage of the situation. During this per- period, the poor got poorer, while well, the rich, got richer, and the rich in Israel got richer. With their wealth, they were able to endure the famine. With their wealth, they began gobbling up properties. With their wealth, they lent money at high interest. And with their wealth, they even began taking on Israelite children as their own servants. Now, it's important to mention that God was not angered by the fact of their wealth. Uh, the Bible describes all different kinds of people when it comes to wealth and poverty. Uh, the Bible describes people who were wealthy and evil, but it also describes people who were wealthy and righteous. It describes people who were poor and righteous, but it also describes people who were poor and evil. So God is not concerned with the fact of their wealth, but he was very concerned with the way that these people were obtaining it in that era, along with their unwillingness during a stay of emergency, rebuilding the walls to be generous with others in the congregation. All right, all of this ended really well. I'm making it sound really bad, but it ended well. They got the project kick-started again. They repented. They got back on track so let's think first about the way that God confronted them. Okay? It was through Nehemiah, you guys notice that. And what did Nehemiah do when he heard the problem in Israel at that time? Look at verse six. I love this line. It says, "I was very angry when I heard you know, the people's complaints and situations. There was an anger inside of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah knew what to do with his anger. Don't you love what he did in verse 7? He says, so I took counsel with myself. (laughs) Sometimes we have to do that, don't we? You know, man, this bothers me so much. i got no one to talk to. I've got no one to lean on. I've got no one to work this out with. It's time for me to have a little powwow with myself. (laughs) Like, all right, Nehemiah, I know what you want to do, bro, but don't do it. Calm down, think about this, pray about it, you want to respond well. And eventually, after taking counsel with himself, Nehemiah brought charges against the nobles. And then he called this big assembly of people all together. This was a public issue, and so he dealt with it publicly. And in verse 9, he said to them, bottom line, he said, The thing that you are doing is not good. He just lays it out there, doesn't sugarcoat it. And then he showed them what it would look like if they began to walk in the fear of the Lord again. They would stop taking advantage of their Israelite family and instead be generous to them. This is not a time for them to flaunt their wealth or even build their wealth, but a time for them to think of others. So what what can we learn from the way that God confronted them? How might God confront us as we look at this passage? Well, what becomes clear as Nehemiah represented God that day is that I think we can say it this way. God, when he confronts us, he will confront us from a state of loving anger. Now, let me explain what I mean to you by that. Because it's very hard for us to imagine God being angry. But the Bible says in places like Ephesians 4 or Psalm 37, verse 8, that we as human beings should be angry without sin. There are things that do enrage us in this life, injustices, unrighteous events, catastrophes, that should cause a stirring up within, yet without the attachment of sin. Sin. This is often where we fail, when we grow angry. But God is the best model of sin-free anger. When God sees someone that is hurt by another person, he is angry because he loves the person who is being hurt, and he loves the person that is doing the hurting. He sees what is happening to their own soul as they commit this crime. You know, in the classic passage in Exodus chapter 34, you might remember the episode where Moses, he wanted to see God so badly. He's like, God, you know, let me see you. And God says, Well, you can't see me. No mortal can see me in the full radiance of my glory and expect to survive. You need a glorified body for that. You can't handle that, Moses. But I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will pass by. You'll see the afterglow of my glory. And when I pass by, I'll declare my name to you. And in declaring his name, God declared his character, who he is, what he's like. And one of the things that God said about himself there is that he is slow. To anger, Not that anger never exists in him, but that he is slow to anger. What this means is that God does not lash out. I'm not going to take a show of hands, but I'm sure there's more than a couple of us here today who know what it's like to lash out in anger. We're quickly provoked. Something causes an unsettled thing, and we just launch out in our angry response. But God does not do that. He's long-suffering. And any anger that he has is a slow and steady position that he's acquired over time. And Nehemiah, as God's representative, he modeled that slow anger really well. He was angry, but he paused for a moment to talk to himself. When he says he took counsel with himself, literally the word that's being used is a word that could describe Gaining reign once again, like a king or queen reigning over their territory or or domain. Nehemiah is gaining self-control in that moment. So with that reign or that self-control, he launches out and responds to the righteous anger within. And God always reigns over who he is. He's never out of control. He's never reactionary, and it's from this position of pure, righteous, love-fueled anger that God confronted the people of Israel that day, just as he will sometimes confront us in our day. You see, God loves us, and God knows that sin damages not just us, but also our church community. And so he's faithful to, from his slow and settled position of anger, confront us. Jesus modeled this at different times in his ministry. One of the most famous, likely, is when he went to Jerusalem twice and in righteous anger cleared out the temple precincts because they were taking advantage of the pilgrims, the worshipers who had come there. To worship in the temple. They were buying and selling and exchanging at exorbitant rates and ripping off the people who had traveled miles to worship God. And this angered Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us that he overturned tables. John's gospel tells us that he prepared in advance a whip of cords to aid him in this process. And I think what angered him is very clear because he quoted from the Old Testament and said in those episodes, it's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. That was loving anger. What do I mean? Well, Jesus loved the nations. And he's like, if you guys are doing this, why would the nations ever want to come to worship here? Why would they ever want to know about your God? And because I care about the nations, I got to deal with this particular issue. And so Jesus confronted them. Now, you might be sitting there today thinking to yourself that it's uncomfortable to think about God as willing to confront us or willing to confront you. But I I want you to consider that that discomfort, it might actually be a really good thing. It might be a clue that we're headed in the right direction in our thinking about the Lord. You see, those who have a God that never offends them, never demands anything of them, never challenges them, or never confronts them, they might have a fictitious God, one of their own design and devising, one who merely approves of their actions without helping them become what he wants them to become. You know, as Christians, one of the things that we like to say is that it's Not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's so true, it is a relationship. The cross of Jesus Christ knocked down the wall of separation between us and Father God. He dealt with on the cross our sin, which was, by the way, an obstacle for us because in our sin we would not desire God, but it was an obstacle for God because He, in his holiness, cannot partake of that which is unholy. But the cross of Jesus makes a way for us to be holy in God's sight because Jesus fulfilled the righteous law on our behalf. And so, as believers, we enter into relationship with the living God, not dead religion. But let me ask you this. What kind of relationship would it be if God was never allowed to confront us? No, in a real relationship, there will be that honesty, that confrontation. It would be no relationship at all. So listen, when you experience God's correcting voice at times in your life, and you will if you're walking with him, don't resist that voice. Don't excuse it immediately as some... You know, shame mongering message that is meant to suppress you. Don't dismiss it right away as legalism. It just might be your Father's love working in your life and working in your heart. So, when a sermon is being delivered and conviction begins to come, when you're reading the Bible and conviction begins to come, when in your conscience, you sense something and conviction begins to come, or when you see the righteous life of someone else and they're doing something in a way that you think, man, that challenges me, don't resist it. Don't say, I've got to suppress that, but embrace God's ministry in your life. Now, let's think secondly about how they responded to God's confrontation. This is where it really gets important, right? It's one thing for God to do his thing, but the people of Israel, they needed to respond well. And fortunately, they did. They didn't try to excuse themselves. They received God's rebuke and uh, they praised God. And in verse 13, it says, they did as they promised. They made all these promises, and then lo and behold, they did what they promised. This is like not normal. In the Old Testament, you know, usually they'd make a promise and then they would not do what they promised to do. But here they make a promise and they do the thing that they promised. It's a beautiful thing. And here's the cool thing. By God's amazing grace, they just get right back on track and they start rebuilding that wall again. God wasn't like, hey, you're done. No, he confronted it, dealt with it, showed him a way out. They took the way out and then the building continued But what were some of the particulars of how they responded? Well, one of the first things I want you to see in the way they responded is that they came to this realization that they were part of a community and that their sin, what they were doing, it affected everybody else. And Nehemiah's way of accomplishing this was by, it was brilliant, calling an assembly. So he's got all these people that have been sinned against in the presence of the people who have sinned against them. And Nehemiah calls this assembly, one of his favorite words in his message and in this chapter is the word brothers. It's like his way of saying, you're hurting your family with these actions. And as they were there, they could draw a direct line between what they were doing, the ones who were guilty, and the way it impacted others in the congregation. You see, there were some there who, though they probably wanted to rebuild the wall, were dreaming of rebuilding the wall, would like to have been about God's kingdom, they couldn't because they had to figure out how to get enough grain to survive another day. They were having hard conversations at home about should we send our child into indentured servitude to help make ends meet? And in the assembly, those who were sinning saw the effect of their sin on the entire congregation. This is beautiful because I think a major step is taken in the Christian life when a person begins to realize that their Christianity is not just an exclusively private relationship with the living God, but a communal relationship with the living God that my life impacts your life, and your life impacts my life, that my spiritual vitality or your spiritual vitality affect the entirety of the group or the congregation. This was a family affair, and these people, through Nehemiah's tactics, began to realize how their lives made an impact on others. But the other thing that happened is that they began, through Nehemiah's coaching, to return to the fear of God. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah said, The thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of God? Now, this is an interesting phrase for us, the fear of God. It's sometimes hard for us to understand because when we think about fear, we think about paranoia or apprehension. We think maybe about someone who has been hurt or abused, and they're trying to survive the attacks or the torment of their abuser. They'd be living in fear, apprehension, worry, concern, or terror. But when the Bible speaks about the fear of the Lord, what it's speaking about is an awe, a respect, or a reverence for God that is beyond any awe, respect, or reverence we would give to any human being on earth. And this is a huge key to life. Psalms uh, 111 verse 10 says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What that means is that when you build your life off of reverence, awe, and respect for God, what will follow are wise results. You'll make wise results decisions and conversely the opposite is true a careless disregard of god a lack of respect and reverence and fear of god will ultimately and inevitably submerge you into a life of folly but why did they need to return to the fear of the lord well think about it you had all of these nobles and officials who were in positions of power and authority without the fear of the lord Why would they stop doing what they were doing? And without the fear of the Lord, who could stop them from doing what they were doing? They were in the positions of authority and power. But with the fear of the Lord, they would realize, man, I'm not at the top of the food chain. I'm responding to a God who is above me. This is beautiful. This is actually one of the major reasons why why Christian lives should look different from society and culture. We have a reason for doing good works. It's because our lives are lived under the authority of God. You see, if we were honest, the evolutionary way, the survival of the fittest, the life that would make sense under that paradigm is that we should abuse and fight our way to safety and security. We should take advantage of other people because it's about me and my survival and not about them. But under the fear of God, a believer recognizes, man, I've got to respond to him. I'm going to give an account for my life. He's watching, and I want to please him. But the, the last thing I want you to see about the way that they responded is that they began to believe that they needed to represent God really well. And look at verse 9. Nehemiah said, The thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? You see, what Nehemiah knew is what Jesus knew when he went to the Temple Mount and did all that correcting. That the mistreatment of the congregation would bring the ridicule of the nations. Why would the nations come to worship God in Jerusalem's temple if they saw that God's people treated each other horribly? How would God's reputation escape undamaged if his people lived this way? You guys know that Jesus told us that we are the salt of the earth and that we are the light of the world. And to be salt and light means that we're conscious of how our lives impact our testimony or our witness of who God is and these people realized at that point all of these things they, they were snapped to reality wow we're part of a community and what we're doing is hurting our community they realized that they had been been operating outside of the fear of God they didn't care about his opinion on their actions and so they returned to the fear of the Lord And they knew they needed to begin to represent God well to the nations by treating each other so much better than they had been treating them. And like I suggested or hinted at earlier, all this is beautiful because then Nehemiah gives them a path to take. He doesn't just decimate them and say, game over. He says, it's time for you to return. And they said, yeah, we want to do it. So Nehemiah calls all the priests out. He's like, all right, let's make this a spiritual thing. I'm going to facilitate a vow that you're going to make before God. The priests are here. And then he does this dramatic thing in verse 13 where he takes his robe and he shakes out the fold of his robe. And he's like, anybody who says they're going to do this and doesn't do this, they're going to get shaken out of the community like the fold in my garment has just been shaken out. And all the people looked at all of that. They're like, well, Nehemiah, it's a little dramatic, don't you think? But amen. Amen. We receive it, and they praised the Lord. They took the path that God gave to them. This is God's way. He provides a path to renewal. He does more than point out wrongdoing. He shows us the way back into his obedience and blessing. This is the way of God. You know, the Bible says in Romans 8, verse 1, some of you might have had this verse rolling around, rattling around your head this morning as I've been talking about God's confronting ministry in our lives it says in romans 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus if you're under the gospel there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus but condemnation is very different than the conviction of the holy spirit condemnation is vague you don't know what it is but for some reason you feel god is displeased with your life it's very vague non-specific And condemnation has no path of escape. There's nothing I can do. There's no grace. There's no thing to repent of. There's no avenue at my disposal. But with God's correcting work in hand and discipline, with his conviction, both of those things are there, will be specific, and there will be a plan of action that God delivers to you. And so the people of Israel at this moment, they took the path that God gave to them. All right, so that's the main story. But Nehemiah concluded this section with one last little movement in verse 14 and to verse uh, 19. And in that section, Nehemiah recounts what it was like when he was governor for 12 years. Apparently, Uh, After they'd rebuilt the wall, he went back to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes said, hey, go back to Jerusalem and be the governor there for a period of time. And so he records in verse 14 that he was the governor for a 12-year period of time. Um, And what verse 14 to 19 describe are the way that Nehemiah operated, the, the kind of the principles that he abided by, as the governor of Jerusalem at that time. And I think that what the reason Nehemiah put this episode here in his journal is because what he did for 12 years is what he had hoped to find in Israel in the previous episode. You know, these are kind of the principles that he abided by, and he was hoping to see them. It was the environment that he envisioned, the environment that God envisioned. So what was Nehemiah doing? Well, In verse 15, it says that he would not lay heavy burdens on the people. So that indicates that Nehemiah was a servant leader. You know, he was leading, but he was serving as he led. Uh, He also says in verse 16 that he persevered in the work on the wall. So what that means is that even after they did the initial rebuilding, uh, he was still all about refurbishing and like really getting this project completed and finished. That means that Nehemiah was a focused leader. He was very focused. He knew why he was there. And then in verse 17, he says, you know, I had 150 people that ate at my table. He provided for it out of his own pocket. And I don't know if you notice this, but in verse 18, it's one of the biggest miracles in the whole Bible because Nehemiah was the governor. That made him a politician. And as a politician, he refused the taxes that were due him. One of the biggest miracles in all of the Bible. He said, you guys can keep your food allowance that belongs to me, you guys keep it. That means that Nehemiah was a considerate leader. And then he was a God-oriented leader. He closed this whole section out by saying in verse 19, remember me for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He's praying to God. He says, God, I don't need the praise of the people, but I need you to think that I've done a good job. So remember me for all that I've done. He was a God-oriented leader. Now stick with me for a second as I wrap this up, but Nehemiah here was a foretaste of Christ, don't you think? I mean, when Jesus came, he was like Nehemiah, but better than Nehemiah, the ultimate servant leader. I mean, he washed the feet of his disciples, he served his disciples in these beautiful ways. When Jesus came, He was like Nehemiah, intensely focused. Nehemiah was focused on building the wall, but the Bible says that Jesus' face was set like a rock to go to Jerusalem so he could die on the cross. That was his mission, his wall to build. Nehemiah considered the people, and Jesus was intensely considerate of the weaknesses of his own disciples. And just as Nehemiah committed himself into the hands of his father God, Jesus even more so committed himself into the hands of his father, always doing what the father pleased and in his dying breath saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the Christ-like way that Nehemiah lived and that God envisions for every iteration of his church throughout all of history. He wants us to be people like Nehemiah, people like Jesus. He wants us to increasingly serve one another. He wants us to increasingly stay focused on the gospel, our mission. He wants us to increasingly consider one another's weaknesses. And he wants us to increasingly live for the Father's pleasure. This is really important. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul was writing to a church in a metropolis. So there were all different types of people that had gathered together in the church in Rome. It was, you know, you had every uh, ethnicity, race, you had every type of mentality and background. You had everybody in the church in Rome. And so Paul wanted to write to them as he closed out the book of Romans on how to do church in an environment like that. And he offered three suggestions. The first suggestion was terrible. He was like, don't do this, but he wanted to paint the picture. The first way was one that was filled, a church that was filled with quarrels over opinions, to quote Paul. Uh, There were some in their day who thought that they could eat all different types of meat, and there were some who thought they could eat only vegetables. There were some who thought they could worship on all these different days, and there were some who thought there was only one specific day for worship. And These arguments that they began having led to a judgmental spirit that led some, Paul says, to despise others in the congregation. That's the first and honestly most natural and carnal way of doing church. So Paul had a different suggestion. He's like, don't do that. The second way is this. He says, in areas the Bible is silent about, Believers should refuse to pass judgment on other people while living as if they will one day personally give an account of their lives to God. In this way, everyone determines, Paul said, not to stumble or hinder their brother or sister in Christ, which means that they won't force someone else to partake in their freedoms or partake in their convictions. But after saying that and describing that beautiful way, Paul kind of gave like a second way plus or a third way. And in this way, he highlighted the way of Christ. He said in Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. In this third way, the path of Christ, that's the one that Nehemiah modeled for the people, and it's the one we're to live as well today. Jesus took the blame and the guilt that did not belong to him, that he did not deserve, so that he could give life to us. He served and keeps on serving us. He centers us on the gospel, and he laid down his life and rights to take up our burden. So we should be like Jesus and take on the burdens of others and lay down our rights just as Christ laid down his rights for us.